1: brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell
0: for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Katherine Kovacic, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl, lovely to be here. It's so nice to have you or to have you on Zoom, anyhow. Let me introduce you. You know, pre COVID, all our podcasts were done person to person. Yeah. And uh, we actually built, had a, a purpose-built um, space for it in the office, um, oh. and we probably finished that just before COVID. Of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it goes that saying, doesn't it? That's right. We've only used it once or <laughs> yes. twice. But anyway, it's there when we need it. Perfect. <laughs> That's right. Next time. Next time, Next Cheryl. Time. Yeah. That's, <laughs> right. That's right. And let me introduce you. Catherine was a vet, but preferred training and having fun with dogs to taking their temperatures. I absolutely am with you. For those that know me, I have a little John Brown who I adore and I love dogs so much. Uh, she sees the chance to return to study and earn an MA followed by a PhD in art history. I mean, it's kind of an about face, isn't it? Oh, Yes. <laughs> Her first book, The Portrait of Molly Dean, was shortlisted for a Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction. Her latest book, The Schoolgirl Strangler, is the shocking true story of a serial killer in 1930s Melbourne. Catherine does live in Melbourne and is a self-confessed, of course, crazy dog lover. (laughs) Now... Tell me, Catherine, what we like to talk about here, uh, the book is called The School Girl Strangler and we will get on to that. But I want to talk about how you came from right back, where you grew up, how you came to be a vet and how your career kind of took a turn and you studied art history.
2: Wow, okay. So um, grew up in Melbourne, always been an animal lover um, and I like studying. So I I like just like learning stuff. So girls' school, which was very much, you know, Girls into the science stream then. That was just when I was starting to, to get more girls into science, so, and careers, you know, no, that was, there's always the thing about doing arts degrees and careers and jobs and things like that. Yes. So I did science, I did really, you know, hardcore science and um, went to uni, did, did veterinary studies, um, graduated, practiced for a couple of years. And then um, my family had a business and um, as, you know, one does when one grows up, I'd spent weekends and holidays and all that sort of stuff working in the family company. And um, a couple of it years. It wasn't ago, a vet. No, no, no. This is actually, <laughs> of, of all things, book distribution. So oh, really?
0: Yeah, yeah. What was it so called?
2: It was called Brumby Books. So they became, were, when we sold, went to Brumby Sun State, they were absorbed into Gordon and Gotch. And they, they're still kind of the. I'm involved. very
0: familiar with them.
2: Yeah, well, there you go. So I took a couple of years off veterinary Medicine because we decided we we're going to expand the company. And that would have meant putting on a manager and training up a manager in our processes. But because I knew the company kind of inside out and back to front, I'll take six months off, we'll um, we'll build the company up, we'll do what we need to do and then I'll go back to veterinary medicine. So three years later, um, I'd had three great years working with the family, which was really lovely, but I'd also dipped my toe back in at Melbourne Uni because I'd had all those sort of arty things that I'd never had a chance to do while I had my head buried in a science book. And back then you could go along and kind of sit, they called it auditing the subject, so you paid them a minimal amount and you could sit in the back of the lecture theatre, not have to hand in anything, not have to do anything. And, of course, being me, I did a couple of those. thought, oh, This is rather interesting, but I may as well get credit for it while I'm here.
3: Yeah.
2: So um, because I, you know, when you're a vet, you're on call and you have, you know, pages and emergency things, and I didn't have that, so it kind of felt like I had all this free time. So you hadn't
0: practised.
2: Yes, I'd would I'd been two years oh. in practice, but it was, yeah, it was two or three, no, it was probably actually about five years. but Anyway, I'd been wow. in practice for several years, but because yeah. I'd taken this time off to be in the family business, which was much more of a nine to five thing, I just felt like I had all this extra yep. time on my hands. So um, I started doing these art history subjects while I was still working in the family business. And a couple of subjects sort of just morphed into the Master of Art, which morphed into the PhD. And um, as they do, as they do. Um, And then so at the end of it, I found I had this entirely different career path. And of course, when I did the PhD, and what I did a lot of was I actually looked at animals in paintings, obviously, the human animal bond in art and things like that. And so it was really quite funny, because the arts people were a little bit like, oh, you're the vet. You're looking at animals in paintings and is that dogs playing poker, is it? You know, so there's actually (laughs) this real snobbery about
0: it. "Mm -hmm." There is. I want to, we interviewed a a fabulous Australian living in, in, um, being at Harvard, a lab or a, mm-hmm. a research facility is a better word for it. His name's David Sinclair. I don't know if you've heard of him. Anyway, yeah. oh, you have. Okay. Mm. So when I spoke to him, and I, I'm coming back to your point there, he said to me, you know, that you know, in 10 or 15 years' time, people are going to live longer. Than they, they, we've got. Probably the the meds for disease to disappear and people mm-hmm. to live to a hundred or two hundred or whatever and you know a, a, to live a, a capable life and be fit and healthy. But he touched on career and he said that in such a long lifespan you could have two, three, four, five careers. And you, in a very short lifespan, <laughs> <laughs> have been a vet, worked in the family business, which yeah. would have been what management and admin, I yep. guess. And then you went into research mm-hmm. and now you're writing. Four careers so far. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it keeps it interesting, right?
2: That's right. That's As I said, I, I just I like to learn stuff, so it's whatever's going
0: on. All right, so back to study and how you yeah. have to writing.
2: Um, yeah, so then, of course, when I finished the PhD and then I started, I still sort of have a hand in the family business now, but I do work in the heritage sector with sort of um, museums and collections as well. But of course, we're back to the thing that when I'd finished the PhD, because then I'd carved out that time out of the workday or the work week to work on the research and the PhD, I still had that chunk of time. And, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And I thought, well, this is just going to get sucked back into the workday or family as as these things do. So I went and did a writing a novel course just to, course to keep, my, keep my little space <laughs> open. And um, yeah. it wasn't that I had, you know, manuscripts under the bed or, you know, half finished and piles of ideas but I just I just wanted that space and I enjoyed writing. Had you thought about writing? Not really my I guess being in the book industry which is my family's book distribution business you know there's always that sort of the idea of books because you know you'd get things in like chicken soup for the soul or something you think
0: what is this how did this how does this get to be a bestseller? Okay Catherine let's stop right there I've been in the book (laughs) business for over 30 years way longer than you and I've (laughs) never thought about writing. (laughs)
2: So I think I think probably also the PhD helped with that too because, you know, you're writing and researching there and and I realised I like, you know, I like playing with words and I like constructing, you know, paragraphs and sentences and, you know, the feeling when you're reading a book and sometimes you have to stop because it's just such a nice sentence. yeah So, yeah, so I just thought oh, I could do things with words. So I did this writing a novel course and, um, and then, of course, I did writing a novel part two because I was halfway through writing a novel. So what are you going to do? And at the end of that I had the draft for The Portrait of Molly Dean, which was my first book. And I sort of honed that up and polished it a bit. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with it? So I went to um, a, a speed publishing afternoon, which is just like speed dating. You have five minutes with a series of publishers. Someone rings a bell, you move on to the next one. And either they're interested or they're just very polite. And they uh, Just
0: for there. those, for our listeners, it's you're pitching that book, aren't you? Yeah,
2: that's right. That's right. So it's, it's sort of, it's the five minute well five minutes if you like your elevator pitch for what your book's about uh, what it kind of sounds sits like on a shelf in a bookshop you know what are the comparable titles so you, you have to just come up very quickly with the kind of key points of your plot and, and why this would be an exciting proposition for publishers to to grab and I had quite a bit of interest from these these five publishers at the speed dating inn and actually echo publishing who became my publisher um they were the ones who were the most blasé about the whole thing. They are like, well, we can get your details if we're interested. But they were, as with, with the other publishers, they will write back to me. So um, from speed publisher dating, speed publishing pitching, um, I became a published author.
0: Yeah, wow. Mm. And how do you feel about that? Do you feel that this is what your career has been working towards? Because I feel very much, and I'm a lot older than you, but I feel very much I mean I've worked in the book industry forever but I've worked in lots of different roles and I feel that where I am now I think everything was leading up to that point. Do you feel that with writing? I think I think in a way yes it's it's um I feel incredibly lucky to to
2: be in this position but um it's everything is sort of informed where I am now so you know as I said the the veterinary stuff still informed the art history stuff and certainly the art history stuff informed the the Alex Clayton art mystery books but even you know back when we were working the book distribution business and we'd get these titles in that that were quite you know esoteric or off the wall but were huge sellers my father was always a great one and he'd say why don't you write something you could write better than this I'm like dad it doesn't work that way you can't just you know write something and expect to get published so you know back to dad however many years ago thanks dad you know he, he he saw it then so yeah
0: yeah. It's interesting, I think, um, with writing as well, that, that because we can all write, everybody thinks that everybody can write because you can write an email, yeah. or you can write. Uh, but to sit down and think about writing a novel or a nonfiction piece of, you know, 80,000 or 90,000 words, I mean, it's a monumental task. There's craft involved. You know, you have to learn how to write, don't you?
2: Absolutely. And I think, I think as you say, that you think I should just be able to write, but it's it's a skill like any other and you have to practice and you have yeah. to work at it. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, so tell me how the idea came, I know it's nonfiction. the idea for you to write about this story. How did that kind of come about? I think... Um, and again, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but again, I think it's a departure.
2: The true crime.
0: Yes. Yeah, it,
2: it is. Um, I think I'd come across this the story of these crimes when I was researching something else and I I'd so I really put it to one side I hadn't sort of thought about writing a true crime book but um the story really stuck in my head I think these four young girls their story stuck in my head the give f- us yeah. an overview okay so um Melbourne in 1930 mm. the first victim her name was Mina Griffith she was 12 years old she was playing in a park sunny Saturday afternoon with a couple of her siblings And a strange man approached her and asked her if she would run an errand for him. And she said yes. And her sisters followed her down the street for a little bit until he gave them some money to go into the lolly shop. And when they came out of the lolly shop, she was gone. And that was the last anyone saw of Mina Griffiths alive. And her body was found the next day. And then a few weeks later, another young girl was murdered, and her body was positioned, and the the style of the murder was very similar. It was obviously that there was a connection between these two crimes and ultimately there were four victims. So we had a serial killer in Melbourne during the early 1930s and the police were completely stymied. A serial killer was not, that term wasn't even in existence then, so they had no idea what they were dealing with and really no idea how to approach the investigation because this was sort of pre-forensics. Fingerprinting was just in its infancy, but if you've got nothing to compare it to, you know, what are you going to do if you manage to find a fingerprint? And I think the other thing to this guy, that he was, this guy was almost like the ultimate bogeyman because he seemed to be able to just convince people to walk away with him. So Mm. he was quite, quite charming. And, you know, it's it's the, it's the the trope of the, the serial killer when someone says, oh, he was such a quiet man. He was, you know, lovely neighbor, very polite husband, lovely father. And he was exactly, he was this ultimate bogeyman who was able to just whisk these little girls off the street without anybody seeing a thing.
0: So uh, I I interrupted you earlier. Tell me how you got to this story and tell me how you came to write nonfiction.
2: I think um, for me, having found this story when I was researching, I'd sort of known about it in vague terms, but when I really looked at it and saw these four little girls Mm -hmm. and the way this guy was able to evade police for six years, that story really stuck in my head and I, I hadn't actually planned on writing a true crime book but then I was literally I was coming back from the Ned Kelly Awards I think it was with um, the head of Echo Publishing and we're on light rail in Sydney together and she said you ever thought of writing a true crime book and I said well not really but and I basically did the five minute elevator pitch to her on light rail coming back from the Ned Kelly Awards and she said send me a synopsis as soon as you can So I think what astounded me then was how much of this story I really had sitting in my head because I think for the victims and just for the fact that he was this guy who was able to fly under the radar, it was just such an, an amazing and a tragic story. It just felt like it needed to be told.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
1: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: I'm just thinking about it now and taking some some notes, but did you feel the sense that it needed to be told because you needed to tell their story, these kids' story? Or what was so compelling about the story? Because there's so many true crime books written, but this is this is unusual.
1: Yeah, I think
2: for me it was it was definitely about the victims in this case. And I think, you know, I see true crime stories that, that talk so much about the perpetrator and put their name front and centre. Mm. And one of these little girls still doesn't have a marker on her grave. Two of the others had markers put on in 2012 through a, a sort of a fundraising thing.
0: What does and that I, mean?
2: It was difficult in those times. The, the families were very poor. They didn't necessarily have the money to do it. But for me, I just I think these little girls—they they deserve to have their story told. They deserve to be remembered. Um, they deserve to be to be given a voice in a way. It sounds sounds sort of very very arrogant to say it that way, but I, it just their lives were taken. You know, the youngest was six years old, mm. and I cried a lot writing this. I cried when I was reading about the families. You know, some of the things the family said and and the mothers particularly. It's it just people need to to sort of know about these, these other people, these, these, the stories of people's lives, really.
0: Mm. Um, are there descendants? Did you, in your research, did you meet any family members? This year was difficult. No, I
2: spoke to, to several family members and I was in contact via email with others. One of the families doesn't even have a photograph of the girl, you know, photography wasn't, you know, if you were a poor family, they might've been a school photograph, but that was it so it's it really is a case of you know remembering these girls as as best they can. Um, one of the family, the descendants didn't even know that they'd had this uh, a murder in the family until the nineteen late 1960s so and this murder happened in nineteen thirty and they sort of found out about it by a roundabout way because it just it wasn't talked about it was there was almost a sense of shame in that generation that their family had been involved. In, in you know this shocking crime and dragged into the public eye. So they knew they'd had a, a, an aunt or a great aunt who'd who died um, quite young, but that was all they knew about it. They didn't know that she'd been murdered.
0: You know, it made me think too of, uh, and I'm sure there's lots of research around this and I'm probably not choosing the right words here, but kind of murder and privilege, murder and poverty, the value of human life sometimes that it's devalued murders are devalued when we don't value that position, you know, whether it's poor people, whether it's migrants, whether it, it, talk to me about that.
2: Yeah, I think that's very true. Certainly looking at this case and I mean, I actually sort of came to this case, I was looking at murders of other women around that 1930 period and there were quite a few. There there was a huge element of victim blaming, you know, what was she doing out by herself dressed like that and even with these children, you know, there was the first victim, there was questions asked in court about, you know, could she have been sexually active? And this is a 12-year-old girl who was snatched from the swings, basically, in the park. Um, and for the others, there was sort of things, oh, well, she went along with him or she was out on a Saturday night. You know, this was the, the, the oldest of the victims was 16 and, you know, her father had tried to bring her into line but she was, you know, she was out on a Saturday night and like 10 o'clock at night. Mm. So there were these insidious little, little things that, that were just like, even though these were children, that somehow they'd played a part in getting themselves selected by this person.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think it's a documentary about Lindy Chamberlain that oh. I saw recently. Is it, and you'll probably know more about this than I do, but are Australians really particularly good at victim blaming? Because when you have a look at that case, It's extraordinary. How innocent that woman was! Is it because we just get sucked up in victim blaming? I think we do. I think
2: um, there gets to be a, a frenzy around that sort of thing, and I think yeah. for for poor Lindy, you know, the idea of, of a, a baby, you know, I think that was that was a huge thing there too. But the the wild theories, you know, that Azaria means sacrifice, and the black ba- the black dress, and all these sorts of things, were just mm. beyond the pale, and it was. You know when you can look at it retrospectively, you just see what a an absolute stitch up it was and how how they they, they didn't look they just decided she was going to be guilty, so they made her guilty and mm. certainly, with a couple of the um the people that were accused along the way here uh, before they got the real killer, that was the situation there they they looked for the best fit essentially and then didn't look anywhere else
0: mm. how did the the relatives that you spoke to, are they feeling, were they supportive in you writing a book? Tell me their response to you or their reaction to you.
2: There was some of the um, interest because I knew a lot more than they did. Mm. Um, certainly some of the relatives were saying uh, we want it to be, you know, we want, want it to be about the girls, which is always what I wanted to do too, you know, that mm. they they had also felt that that there was that sensationalism around who the killer was and, you know, him being, you know, this Australian serial killer, blah, blah, as opposed to thinking about the victims. So I think that was where they were coming from. And certainly a protective, which I 100% expected Mm. and and that that why did I want to know who was I? And yes, absolutely, because Mm. obviously if they're looking at that sort of sensationalism thing again, I never wanted to write a, a book that was Girl Gets Murdered and I always wanted to have the presence of the girls and that story is you know, front and center in this book.
0: Mm. Talk to me about the compa- And I don't know if you've done this work, but just in what you know, ha- have things changed a lot in terms of our perception of murder, particularly women and children? Hmm.
2: I think that's a really difficult question, actually. But mm. I think certainly there was there was a lot of there was a lot of horror about these crimes because the victims were children. I think, in a way, I think our perception hasn't. I think we still don't do enough. You know, we're, we're all horrified at the time. And this was certainly what I saw looking back at this. Everyone's horrified. Everyone's shocked and outraged. The media sustains it for as long as the police are working actively and coming up with bits and pieces. And then if there's no perpetrator arrested, it fades from the public eye. And I think even when we have arrests, there's still a perception of, of moving on that we don't, we don't honour these victims enough. And I think there's certainly a perception that we don't Punish the criminals hard enough these days when they're apprehended?
0: I think, in, in, in cases, particularly this is a layperson's perspective, but I think very often the perpetrator becomes the person that's most looked after, like in terms of legal. Rights most looked after in terms of mm-hmm. representation. Is, do you think that that's true? You yeah. often that's who you're hearing about. And I, to be a family member, like a parent or a sibling, or a, that must be so distressing.
2: Yeah, I think it's appalling. And it, you know, it was the case then too that um, that when he was found guilty at the original trial, you know, they started appealing and they appealed. How- through the through the the courts in Victoria, through the Supreme Court, through the High Court of Australia, and then all the way to the Privy Council in the UK, which is sort of the last bastion, and that was all funded. you know he didn't he didn't have money to pay for that. And meanwhile, in the local papers, in the towns where you know the girls had come from the public, the the townspeople and particularly the families were were crying out that this was going on and that why were they defending the indefensible? And people who had been falsely accused had no legal recourse. They certainly didn't get any money back for all the legal expenditure they'd had, even though one family was bankrupted by having to defend a family member. Um, The person who had ultimately helped to to arrest this man who had identified him, there had been a reward out, £500, and he was told, well, thanks for your help, but tough luck, you're not going to actually get the reward. Whereas all these resources were channeled towards seeing if we could overturn the death penalty for this man. So yes, there was there was literally, there were articles in local papers saying, why is this happening? Why are you prolonging the torment for our community and for these families?
0: Mm. So a story like this, like, you know, as a reader, it doesn't leave you. As a writer, how do you move on to the next project? I
2: almost feel as though I haven't properly moved on to it yet. You know, mm. I feel it's, a big story, and it sat with me for a long time, and I hadn't realised that it had been sitting with me before I started to, to get it out onto, on, well, I say onto paper, but you know, into the computer. Um, I think working through the permutations of it and all the the minor details has helped me to compartmentalise it in a way. And working through the legal argument side of it and literally yelling at the pages that I was reading. Oh, come on! You can't seriously. Um, that sort of made me more determined to put the story out because when you, you, you know, when you see them sort of saying, oh, well, you know, maybe he could have been blah, blah. really, you, this has to come out. This has to, you know, he has to be shown for what he was. But I, I honestly, I, I feel like I've, I've got these girls with me at the moment. I, I don't think they're going to leave me for a long time, if ever, because I feel like I've, I've sort of, I've got their, I feel like I've taken on the responsibility in a way for their story. Mm. Um, and for making sure that they they remain known
0: mm, you've got their back mm-hmm. okay so you've written fiction and you've written non-fiction what's next
2: <laughs> <laughs> i i have a, a standalone thing that i'm i'm toying around with at the moment so back to back to fiction but uh, completely different characters to the ones i've written before i do have another alex clayton art mystery that's kind of well that's sort of Almost, almost finished the, the draft. So that's that's to play around with a bit more. Um, I I don't feel I'm up for another true crime at the moment because it was it was a grueling experience and I'm full of admiration for the authors who are, are true crime, you know, devoted to that that genre because it's for me it was really tough. It was emotionally tough.
0: I often uh, think about the um, true crime journalists sitting yeah. day in day out, and I think, oh, that's a tough gig. Yeah. That's a yeah. tough gig, yeah.
2: It's a bit of a watch this space at the moment. There's a, there's a few things on the boil.
0: Do you prefer one over the other? Are you, you know, in terms of mm. uh, writing and the craft of writing, do you have a preference? Is one easier or is one more complex? Is Talk to me about that. I think they both have their challenges. I mean, you have the advantage
2: in fiction that you can you can go off on sort of, you know, crazy wild flights of imagination and see where it takes you. And you know, in, in sometimes I'd be writing my Alex Clayton character and I'd think I'd know where the story was going. And then suddenly I'd find I'd be writing a totally different thing. And I'd be like, what what is what is she doing? What where is she? And then I'd if you you just go with it and sometimes it's a complete train wreck and you have to trash the whole thing. But sometimes it takes you down really interesting little side things and I I didn't think of that. But this is very cool. We can go with this. Whereas obviously with the nonfiction, you yeah, you're constrained by the facts but um, I, I like research too so that's you know and, and having my head buried in, in dusty dusty things and the, the, the real thrill you know when you you sort of think you've, you've, you've been looking and looking and then suddenly you know that file that you didn't think would have anything in it, you know you pull out a page and there's not even necessarily the little nugget of information you've been looking for but a, and a whole different gem that you didn't even know existed just tucked away in this file. And that's, you know, that's a real, that's, oh, that's a really exciting
0: thing. <laughs> okay. So, you know how, when we used to travel mm-hmm. and we'd have to write <laughs> back in the day, and we'd have to write our occupation, what would you be writing? Wow. <laughs> oh, that, I know. <laughs> oh, that's that just,
2: you know, that, that just blows my mind because it's, it never it never feels quite right to say author because it, it just I don't know but I guess I I am
0: so you've been published twice yeah, yeah you I could
2: th- say that yeah, I think so I think so so um it's you know it I, it I definitely doesn't go veterinarian anymore you know that's that's sort of sitting in the past so whether it's um art historian or author or you know it, I guess it depends on the day I'm having with the writing, really. So if, I, if I've been sitting on a plane writing and it's been going well, I'd probably put author on the arrivals card. But, you know, <laughs> if I've just trashed 20,000 words because it was all just art historian, and unimportant, <laughs> I don't know.
0: I can't write. That's it, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a great conversation. Uh, the book is called Schoolgirl Strangler. Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our chat.
2: Me too, Cheryl. Thank you.